Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The transatlantic alliance between the United States and Europe, most clearly embodied by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, has been the centerpiece of American grand strategy since before NATO's founding in 1949. Going back to the Europe-first strategy of the Second World War, American planners assumed security and stability on the old continent was essential to the future of America and Western civilization. That strategy held off Soviet expansionism and eventually led to the triumph of democracy across the Iron Curtain as well. Success, however, has brought new uncertainties. Without the Soviet threat to unite them, Americans and Europeans have argued about the nature and future of NATO and its relationship to a European Union that is itself struggling with an identity crisis. Even as the alliance has expanded to admit former adversaries from Central and Eastern Europe, relations with Russia remain fraught. Even as broader global concerns have driven wedges between the United States and its European allies. Ironically, The recrudescence of Russian expansionism in Georgia and Ukraine hasn't made things easier, as Europeans still debate the proper mix of hard and soft power, while the Trump administration flirts with abandoning the free-riding Europeans once and for all. Our guest today to discuss the past, present, and future of the Atlantic Alliance is Stanley Sloan, the founding director of the Atlantic Community Initiative, visiting scholar in political science at Middlebury College, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center of the Atlantic Council of the United States, and an associate fellow of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. He is the author, most recently, of Transatlantic Traumas, Has Illiberalism Brought the West to the Brink of Collapse? And the author of Defense of the West, NATO, the European Union, and the Transatlantic Bargain, which was originally published in 2016 and is due to come out in a revised edition later this year with the new title, Defense of the West, Transatlantic Security from Truman to Trump. So with all of that in mind, welcome, Stanley Sloan. Ron, pleasure to be with you and with your listeners. Great to have you here with us. And so I want to ask you just to start right off, as, as an alliance that's held together for such an unusually long time, should we consider NATO a success story? And if so, what's the secret? Well, I think it is a success story, mm-hmm. no question about that. The question is whether it will remain a su- success story into the future. Indeed. And why? I think one of the, the things that people don't understand is that the source of strength for the alliance and one of the sources of weakness is the fact that the North Atlantic Treaty, uh, the way the alliance was structured, was in a way that respected the sovereignty of every member. Mm-hmm. And this means that decisions have to be taken by consensus, that if someone disagrees, uh, there won't be an agreement, there won't be a, a solution to a problem. And I think that say that's a weakness because it makes decision-making sometimes difficult. But it's also a strength because it, all the members understand that they aren't going to be overruled on a, some kind of a vote in, in the alliance. Now, granted, uh, some members have more weight in decision-making than others. And the United States has always had, had uh, 
more influence than others. And in fact, one colleague once said uh, something that I think is said in Brussels a lot, and that is that votes at NATO aren't counted, they're weighed. <laughs> and I think that that still is true. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess it's, it's one thing to think about is, is democracies are strong because decision making is difficult. That means everybody feels like they can participate. And so alliances of democracies should also are strong because everybody has a voice. But that also means that uh, that strength comes from their inefficiency, if you will. Absolutely. And the the fact that it is an alliance of democracies is something that is critically important to understand. Granted, people can put to exceptions over the history of the alliance when Turkey, Greece, and now perhaps even some other allies have, uh, let's say, are not necessarily totally in line with the values that are stated in the preamble of the Treaty of Washington. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the values are critically important. And I think we're We've come to a point now where there's a crunch Mm -hmm. Uh, with the challenges to liberal democracy. I think we're at the point where the allies are going to have to make a decision as to whether they not only uh, agree with the treaty, but whether they are still willing to implement it in their policies and their political systems. Yeah, well, I I guess that's the funny thing about things like values, right? If they if they uh, if you value them, then they have costs that you have to be willing to pay. And if you get to the point that you you're not willing to pay those costs, then maybe you don't respect those values, which gets to this problem. Whenever we talk about international relations, Uh, the realists out there walk around with their capital R realism hats on will say values. Uh, ideals, this is all either a smokescreen or an excuse for real power. Um, but can an alliance, could, could any alliance last for 70 years if it was based solely on the material interests of the moment of its member states? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the fact that the alliance has lasted more than 70 years now demonstrates <clears throat> that it has staying power that extends beyond the uh, realism arguments for alliance. The, uh, I think it's important to understand that interests always do come into play, mm-hmm. and this is where the realists have a point. There are times when, when uh, the interests of the allies have not aligned, or there are times when they've decided that strategic interests required uh, putting the values uh, temporarily to the side. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this has been true when This has been true when the Allies have tolerated, for example, military juntas and when, in fact, even inviting Portugal in the beginning, which still had an autocratic government. Those are times when the Allies have judged that the interests, at least temporarily, outweigh the values. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the long run, there has to be some kind of balance there between interests and values. I mean, one could argue that the reason why the alliance was maintained after the end of the Cold War was because uh, the member states felt like the values were important enough that bringing in states of Central and Eastern Europe was a way to encourage those values, those democratic values. Was that, was that a good enough reason, however, to expand the alliance? I, I think of the story a little bit differently, and I was okay. very much involved. Mm-hmm. I was uh, the primary expert working with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the NATO Senate Observer Group uh, for the first round of enlargement mm-hmm. in the 1990s. And I saw a lot of this from the inside. Mm-hmm. 
And I also saw it, I was already at that point lecturing at the NATO College in Rome, and already they were inviting representatives of some of the former Warsaw Pact countries and even the Russians at mm -hmm. that point. Right. And what I saw was that there was a huge pressure coming from Poland in particular, but other, other former allies of the Soviet Union to get into NATO to protect themselves from Russia. And... This was a, a pressure that was initially resisted by most of the countries in the alliance, and even there was skepticism in the United States as well, obviously. There, uh, there was the opposition in, mm -hmm. the, in the Congress, and there was in the administration, in the Clinton administration, there was some reluctance to ruin the relationship with Russia or to put that at risk. But finally, the pressure was too strong, and it was mainly because of the values. And people wrote, including myself, I wrote in a report for Congress that it would be difficult for the Allies, having talked about the values of their organization, to deny the opportunity to these countries that desperately wanted to adopt those values and were willing to uh, make sacrifices to do so. Mm -hmm. And of course, these countries had interests of their own as well. So they're entitled, they're, they're entitled to try to advance their interests as much as any other sovereign state. Yeah, just I think it's important. Some people think that the, the, the United States and the other allies went out hunting for <laughs> allies, and it just was not the reality at that time. Yes. The fact was that the, uh, the former Warsaw Pact countries and former republics, for that matter, in the Baltics, these uh, new states and free, newly free states wanted protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also were, they wanted obviously ultimately to get into the European Union as well. So they wanted both the security and the economic benefits of joining the West. Right. And uh, they had to deal with a lot of resistance mm -hmm. in uh, the beginning. And of course, as you know, there's a lot of discussion both in the sort of policy literature, but even among uh, historians and political scientists of recent events to argue that uh, the expansion of NATO was either a mistake or it was going back on a promise made to the Soviet Union. Um, how, where do you stand on this question? If, if somebody comes up to you and says, Stan Sloan, was the expansion of NATO a mistake? Should the United States have merely focused on its relationship with Russia to the exclusion of the interests of the states of Central and Eastern Europe? What would you say to that? I would say no, it mm -hmm. was not a mistake. That mm -hmm. The United States and the other allies had no choice if they really believed in uh, what they had said for all these decades uh, mm -hmm. the, about the values and the interest in the in the alliance, and I would argue also that as far as Russia goes, in many ways, and in, in fact, even in the early '90s, I projected that the the current chaos at that time in Russia was going to be followed by another period of authoritarian rule. And I believe that that is, is exactly the sequence that we saw. The Russian people were not uh, used to that kind of chaos. They didn't want it. They were used to a very stable, even though uh, restrictive kind of uh, mm -hmm. government and society. And so Putin benefited, obviously, from, from the setup that he had. And the arguments that he's made about the danger posed by NATO and the danger posed by NATO expansion... He knows perfectly well that NATO, because of the sovereignty issued, has no potential for attacking Russia. Mm -hmm. right. uh, Russia doesn't face that kind of a military threat. What worries Putin is that the example of a successful democracy and capitalist free market system in neighboring countries will catch on in Russia as well. And that would pose a threat to his regime. So to my mind, it's 
his perception of the threat to his control that is, is the main issue here, not the question of whether uh, he is actually afraid of, of NATO. I, I know we, we don't want to get caught up in, in hypotheticals, but I want to ask you a hypothetical. <laughs> um, and that is, uh, uh, if, if we argue that the only reason why, that, that it's not that Russia needs to fear NATO, but Vladimir Putin's Russia needs to fear NATO, um, uh, which I, a position that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, does that mean that in the event that there was a different sort of regime in Russia, that there would be a different sort of relationship between Russia and NATO? There certainly could be. Mm-hmm. I see no reason why a different kind of regime that was more liberal, not mm-hmm. necessarily meeting all the Western standards, but a more liberal regime where elections were not only held, but were actually real elections where the Russian people had choices. I, I see prospects for a far different relationship between Russia, Europe, and the United mm-hmm. States. Right. And uh, that is, the, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. That's a, that is a hopeful uh, uh, vision. But then when I look at the current relationship between the United States and the rest of NATO, I see that democracy doesn't necessarily guarantee uh, smooth relations. How, since the, the Trump administration is not the first American administration to complain about NATO, the, NATO's European allies' lack of burden sharing within the alliance. Indeed, President Obama, uh, Secretary of Defense Gates, uh, very recently uh, uh, in, uh, complained about this and told the Europeans that they needed to step up or they would eventually face an American administration that would be less patient with them than other ones. And now they are facing that administration. Um, how should we understand the Trump administration's formal critiques of our European NATO allies and of the, the structure of the alliance? Ron, if I could, let me go back, take the issue back a little bit further. Sure, sure. Burden sharing has been an issue in the alliance from the very beginning, from the, beginning. From the drafting of the <laughs> treaty, when members of the U.S. Congress wanted to make sure that the Europeans were going to be able to hold up their end of the deal. Right. And that's why some members of Congress wanted Germany rearmed right away, why some wanted Spain in the alliance in spite of Franco. And this, this was a burden-sharing issue from the very beginning. Right. And in 1953, when the Eisenhower administration sent John Foster Dulles to a meeting in Paris in which he said that if the European defense community uh, was not approved by France and the other allies that were involved, that it would force the United States into a, a reconsideration, agonizing reappraisal agonizing was reappraisal, the term. A great phrase. <laughs> and so to my mind, that you have to look at the burden-sharing issue as starting way back then, and every administration since then has tried to improve the, the relationship, to get more from the Europeans, with some with greater degrees of success than others and some with failed attempts. The approach of the Trump administration, however, is radically different. And this is why I argue that this is perhaps the most difficult crisis that the alliance has ever faced. And it's faced plenty of crisis situations, differences among the allies, but to my mind, this is the most serious. And why is that? It's that way because no previous president has ever threatened to abandon mm-hmm. the Article 5 mutual defense commitment. This is the first that uh, Trump has not followed through on yet, mm-hmm. but it's something that he obviously uh, he wants to use as a bargaining chip, and sometimes bargaining chips get played. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, why we have a crisis in the alliance at, at the moment. 
And what what can the Europeans do? This is what I wonder about is, 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 is if you're, you're quite right as a historical matter that the issue of burden sharing has always been part, baked into the alliance uh, simply because of the power differential between the United States and any individual NATO member. Um, and yet, uh, does the fact that the Europeans have not been able to essentially satisfy American opinion on this in all those years that American administrations complained, but also made clear they were never going to leave, did we make it too easy for the Europeans to continue to shirk their responsibilities? To some extent, we have. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, it's a very natural outcome. Mm -hmm. The United States is the most powerful country in the alliance. And what I like to say about the burden-sharing issue is that among sovereign democratic states, there will always be a burden-sharing question because every democracy, every leader in a democracy will try to get the most security at the lowest price. And this is what the Europeans more or less have done. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to encourage them to think that the price needs to be increased, that they need to pay more. And in fact, President Obama did get some progress on this after, after the Russians attacked Ukraine and seized uh, Crimea. So it, there, there have been a lot of different approaches. Mm -hmm. I would say if, um, let's say that President Trump is not reelected and a Democrat comes to office, it will be incumbent on the Europeans to demonstrate, and here there will be new pressure, they won't get away from the pressure, but there'll be a lot of pressure on them to demonstrate their appreciation for a somewhat more supportive mm -hmm. American approach. Right. And the way they do that is by increasing defense spending and also increasing cooperation, practical cooperation right. among them. And I think this doesn't mean working toward a European army, because I think that's an unrealistic expectation or even thought of the Europeans. But it does mean developing, giving up some small areas of sovereignty in various cases. The problem is here, of course, that this kind of cooperation requires trust. Yes. And this means not just trust between, usually think of it as an issue between the United States and Europe. But European countries have to trust each other as mm -hmm. well. Right. And uh, yeah, and I was, and this raises the question. You mentioned the idea of sharing some elements of sovereignty, and even if you don't have a European army, there is the question of the the relationship between NATO as an international organization that crosses the Atlantic and the European Union, which is a uh, a different organization that happens to have a great deal of overlapping but not identical membership. That in, in going back, I know. Uh, from the debates in the 1960s, the argument that the, the best relationship would not be one between the United States and a fragmented Europe, but the idea of a United States and a, uh, a coherent European partner. So you could have your alliance of continents. And yet, how can you get there? Um, if we say uh, a European army is not likely, um, if we also say that the European Union is itself facing all sorts of problems and the European Union's self-image uh, as a soft power, superpower, um, tends to exclude coherent discussions of security policy. How should, and especially with the British leaving the European Union, how should the United States imagine some kind of European, uh, a coherent European partnership with the United States? I think we have to be pragmatic and mm -hmm. realistic about what's possible for the European Union. This is one area where I would and have criticized the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. I think it was the administration was far too optimistic about what the Europeans could actually do. I see the European Union as still uh, an, a, an organization where countries have given up bits and pieces of sovereignty, 
but they still hold jealously to their sovereignty in many areas, including defense and foreign policy. And they've got lots of cooperation going on, but there is this uh, residual nationalism that has a very strong force, and I'm not looking at it as a negative thing. I think that is realistically the situation that they face. And even things like suspicion about France, and France could obviously offer and tries to offer leadership, mm-hmm. but there's suspicions even of, well, if the French are leading, they're leading in directions that would be good for France, not necessarily for everybody else. And there still is, even though they will disclaim this, there still is a reluctance to see Germany become right. a very strong leader uh, because of the past. And the the Germans themselves perhaps feel this most strongly. Uh, they, they <laughs> Please don't ask us to take too much charge. We really don't want to. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, and and if if uh, was it Lord Ismay who said right NATO was designed to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Um, so far, uh, two out of three ain't bad, right? The uh, but <laughs> yeah. the issue of what what would uh, people talk a lot about within Europe. Uh, and within NATO, but also within the European Union, the idea that a Franco-German core um, is, is uh, as long as the French and the Germans can agree that they can bring everyone else along with them. Um, it does not appear to be right now that there's a lot of harmony between Paris and Berlin. No, there, there really isn't. And, um, but I do agree that if France and Germany can agree, they represent a powerful leadership combination Mm-hmm. But at this point, there are differences between them. They have different images of, of what that leadership should look like. And uh, that duo has become even more important with the UK having left the European Union. I think that's a real, uh, I won't say disaster, but a real problem, particularly mm-hmm. for the future of, of European defense cooperation. And we still don't know how this is going to turn, whether the Europeans will look kindly on continuing cooperation with the UK or will feel that they need to move ahead without counting on the UK. Because mm-hmm. the UK's, the rhetoric of the May government and even of the Johnson government is that even after leaving the European Union, the, the, the UK will still consider itself part of this broader alliance and will continue to play its security role. And yet uh, one wonders what that role would be like. Are the British hoping to go back to the idea of being a bridge between the United States and Europe? Um, is such a bridge necessary? Or will the British find themselves to be uh, sidelined in discussions? I think right now the British are floating, mm-hmm. and we really don't know how that is going to settle down. I think the government has uh, perhaps too optimistic a perspective on how much control they have over their future. I don't think the United States will see the UK as that bridge mm-hmm. to the European Union or to continental members of the alliance. I think the United States will want to deal directly with them and directly with the UK. This is just <clears throat> this isn't necessarily just the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. I see that as, as something that would be generic for most American administrations. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to take a to 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 personalize the problems of the European or of, of transatlantic relations, right? Is that you this past summer uh, uh, had 
an experience where, uh, in part because of your, say, let's say, critical engagement with current policy towards NATO, that you found that you 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 mentioned you often lecture to the NATO NATO College in Rome, and I think you were you were going to Luxembourg, or was it was it or was it to Rome? The, oh no, you were going to Denmark. Denmark. You were going to Denmark, and uh, at the last minute, uh, you were informed that the uh, State Department no longer required you to go to Denmark and participate in conversations. Um, was this the first time an American government had ever stopped you from talking about NATO? Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. I've done State Department, what they call now public diplomacy tours since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And in all of those cases before, I have always felt free to be critical of whatever government was in power in the United States. Uh, for the early in the early years, I was an employee of the Congressional Research Service. Part mm-hmm. of my job was to be critical <laughs> of uh, government policy and and to suggest what the weaknesses and strengths were. And so I was used to doing that uh, on State Department tours, which I'd done all over Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, Italy, and just uh, a lot of those over the years. And this conference in December was co-sponsored by the embassy. Mm -hmm. It was supposed Mm -hmm. to celebrate and be another celebration of the 70th anniversary of NATO. And it was uh, the the other sponsor was the Atlantic Council of Denmark. I was invited, I think, a little bit late in the process. But uh, they knew, the Atlantic Council of Denmark knew I actually had published things critical of Trump and NATO from the very beginning, from 2017. I published mm-hmm. uh, an, an article that became a chapter in a book. And so I've been out there laying out reasons why I think the President Trump was bad for the alliance and bad for international relations in general. And the Atlantic Council understood that. And what they wanted to do was to have somebody who would provide a different perspective from the one that would be offered by the American ambassador mm-hmm. who was speaking on the program as well. Right. And, of course, when the embassy found out, and apparently I, I, I've heard different stories, and I don't know the exact, whether the State Department ordered it or the, somebody at the embassy said, oh, look, Stone's, Sloan's been critical of uh, Trump when he's, his performance, which just the week before he was in London at the NATO summit. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had tweeted some things that were critical of his performance there. Whether somebody picked up on that, which has been one of the stories, or the State Department, somebody there said, no, you can't have Sloan. Uh, the day before I was to leave for Copenhagen, I got an email saying, you're off the program because the U.S. Embassy will not tolerate, and the U.S. Embassy was putting up a lot of the money for the program. Mm-hmm. So I got my tickets refunded so the Atlantic Council of Denmark wouldn't have to pay for them. <laughs> and uh, But then I did, I tweeted out what had happened, and I did it in a very straightforward way, but I also had prepared the text of my comments, and I put those online as well. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that many thousands of people read my comments, whereas had I just gone and given them, uh, they would have seen been heard by a few people in Copenhagen, and maybe the local press would have picked up on some of it, but that would have been the end of it. But it turned out it was picked up by the New York Times, Washington Post, Mm -hmm. AP, all over the world. And uh, so I think in many ways it was a bad move by the embassy. Perhaps it was a good move for Stan Sloan. I wasn't ashamed of my <laughs> what I was going to say. I'm very proud right. of it, actually. And so it, uh, the consequence is that next week I'll be in 
Copenhagen, the Atlantic Council is organizing two meetings that I'll speak to. I'm also going to speak at a meeting on freedom of speech for uh, another organization the, at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, one of the main newspapers is putting me on stage with their foreign editor for an audience. And then I'm going to the University of Southern Denmark and talking to students about uh, uh, talking truth to power, talking about my jobs both as a CIA analyst and with the CRS, mm-hmm. and then talking about uh, NATO issues at a public meeting. So, so if the effort was to silence Stanley Sloan, we could say that effort has not succeeded. No, absolutely did not. What do you think? What do you think the government? What do you think the United States government's responsibility should be to experts who are critical of government policy? Because I, I, I'm, I'm imagining you described you worked for the CIA and the CRS. Um, that sounds pretty deep state to me, Stan. <laughs> so um, so uh, what do we do with this kind of situation where there, are, there are, are large segments of the expert population, if you will, that are critical of the government? Um, how, how, should, how should the Trump administration deal with those kinds of situations? I would say in my case, they could have dealt with it more wisely mm-hmm. just by allowing me to come and... and uh, give my presentation and say, and and not having suffered the kind of consequences that Mm -hmm. they suffered. So being smart is part of it. I I would like to see the State Department come back to their previous policy of of actually wanting to show in their public diplomacy program that the United States is strong enough to have people of different perspectives and to show that to the world. I've had personal experiences, one in Italy where my, in Naples, where my talk was being translated and uh, simultaneously. And uh, a young man got up at the end of my presentation. This was during the, the second Bush administration. Mm-hmm. And he started launching a diatribe against the Bush administration. And a, a classmate of his, young lady, got up and said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Mr. Sloan does not represent the administration. He's presented some criticisms of it. And don't criticize him. So I, that brought it home to me how valuable that is for those students to have that experience, mm-hmm. to see here was a State Department officer accompanying me and presenting me to an audience, and, and I was being not only allowed but encouraged to give my analysis. And uh, I think the learning process for the foreign audiences in that case was just superb. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has been, it was the opposite in Copenhagen in December. Interesting. So democracies are strongest when we show that we can disagree uh, and debate, uh, both internally and with our allies. Absolutely. Well, and on that, uh, on that happy note, I'm afraid we have to bring this particular conversation discussion to an end. But Stan Sloan, thanks so much for joining us to talk about uh, uh, transatlantic relations here at A Better Peace. It's been Yo. great to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening in to this conversation. Please send us your comments or thoughts on this conversation or any other conversations we've had or suggestions for future programs. Uh, We are always delighted to hear from our listeners. Uh, But uh, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com.
www.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.